Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Garrison Hayes is a content strategist, social media marketer, diversity and inclusion consultant, and a brand consultant. He is currently DEI at Greenhouse Software, and he helps companies amplify diverse voices through powerful video content. He was also a Mogul Top 100 DEI leader of 2021. Garrison is a content creator serving thumb-stopping educational content to a 260,000-plus follower community. He is a history devotee and a natural storyteller. Welcome, Garrison Hayes. Welcome. Thank you. Secondly, thank you for being so willing to stop in and share the space with me to talk about who you are and to share your knowledge. I really, really genuinely appreciate it. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Please give us a highlight reel of your journey to becoming a TikTok influencer. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Like the term influencer is is fraught, right? Like it's, it's full of, of so much baggage that I don't typically describe myself in those terms. I typically describe myself in the most clinical, you know, straightforward way possible, which is content creator. And I think that definition or that term is really important because I've been a content creator for a very, very long time on different platforms and in different spaces. I made my very first short film just for my friends and family when I was like 14 years old. I jumped on YouTube back in 2006 and grew an audience there and and then went off to college eventually and lost touch with all of that until coming into pastoral ministry, which I was a pastor for some time. And while I was a pastor, we would create videos for our congregation throughout the week. Then the pandemic hit, and that was no longer just like an extra thing that we would do. But the only way we were able to really gather people is is virtually. And so making video content, uh, I almost feel like I kind of gave that away at one point in my life, and it kind of came back to me. And so I say all of that to say that just the, the journey to getting to uploading my first video on TikTok was a long and winding road full of content creation along the way. And so I think that's given me a little bit of practice and a little, a little bit of time with communicating with people and figuring out how people receive what you have to say, which I think has helped with growing an audience, which is maybe the influencer part that you're speaking to. It's helped with growing an audience on that platform. I appreciate that you clarify the difference because obviously at least in my mind, content creator is is much more admirable. I mean, maybe I'm being bougie, but it is more admirable in my eyes than being an influencer. However, influencer is more popular. And mm -hmm. so to be both, I would imagine, isn't too shabby right now because <laughs> it has served you well. So I don't yeah. know that you want this one for the other, but I do appreciate the clarification. I think it's actually important for people to understand the difference. I, I think, in my opinion, one is the content creator is more educated, in terms of uh, knowledge and what they're presenting, they've actually had some some stuff behind it. Whereas the TikTok, I get more lost on Insta than I do TikTok because TikTok is, it, it, to me, as much as I do find people on there, it's still people who will act like they know more than they do. And particularly if you're in the field, it's just insulting. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that's for sure. I think you're right that the term influencer <clears throat> comes along with, as I said earlier, the baggage. But the baggage specifically is like these people are almost curating a life that isn't real, right? That's kind of what influ how influencers make us feel like. I know that every single day and every single meal isn't like this picture perfect moment. Whereas I think content creator is broad enough to include people like you and I who yeah. are really trying to bring valuable educational, inform informative, hopefully transformational information and content to the market and to offer that. And it's not that I have everything together. I just right. know enough to put together a really, really succinct three minute video about this topic. And I'm not pretending to know, I'm not, you know, a scholar. I'm not pretending mm -hmm. to do that. I'm just wanting to share this most pertinent part. And that's been, I think, a helpful kind of differentiation, especially when it comes to building credibility. I think there's a great deal of skepticism toward influencers and those who are positioning themselves as influencers. But those who just know maybe just a little bit more than you and want to share what they know, that credibility is, is I think, a lot more possible, if you will, because of that kind of vulnerability and yes, yes. you know lack of pretense. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's a great way to put it. You know, for myself, I'm an educator and I'm a therapist, and I really, at this age and stage of my life, get such a thrill out of you and the younger people doing what I didn't have the platform to do when I was younger. So I feel like it's my place to lift your voices and to share with different people what you all are saying, because it is so important. And I appreciate the creativity, but I really, myself, and maybe it's my age group, appreciate the value of what you're saying more than I do the dances that someone's doing while they're saying it. I really appreciate, you know, the content. So that's the difference for me. So I appreciate the clarification. Now, I appreciate it. Look, I know that the pandemic was a lot for you and it changed your life. Are you, would you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. I could go a number of ways. I've changed careers since the start of the pandemic. I've moved. I lived in the DC area and I moved down South since the pandemic started. And most, for me, most significantly, I lost my father due to COVID-19. There are so many ways that my life has changed yeah. since March of 2020, when this thing became the most important part of everyone's life or lives for the last two and a half years. And, and so, yeah, I could go down any number of those roads. At the time of this recording, we're very close to the one year anniversary of losing my dad. And so I think about him a ton. I've been thinking about him a lot and his impact on my life and influence on my life. And it also, for me, makes me think a lot about the presumably millions of other people uh, whose lives have been impacted by the over 1 million deaths from COVID and more. And, and so all around the world, people's lives have been changed in ways that we can never fully account for and never fully reckon with, I think. I think we will continue to reckon with the impact of COVID-19 and this pandemic for many, many years to come. And so okay. say all that to say that to your question, <laughs> it's changed my life a lot. Yeah. I appreciate, thank you for being vulnerable about your father's passing. And I, and I would appreciate you saying another sentence about it because I did see you speak on it and I think it was powerful to talk about the naysayers and the disbelievers and how it personally impacted your life. I think that's important. Do you mind saying something about that, about your dad's passing no. in honor? Yeah, I don't mind sharing about that. Going into the, I remember early on in the pandemic, the conspiracies were crazy. It was like, oh, this thing is from 5G. And of course, there are the Bill Gates people and all. And it's just like, it's just out of left field. The, the 
ideas, the conspiracies that people were coming up with around this virus, that was just difficult to understand and they wanted to make sense of it all. And I always saw that as a, you know, significant threat. I thought most eminently it was a threat to our democracy. But what, and I think that still remains to be true, but, you know, (laughs) more that's kind of on an existential level. On a personal level, it became a threat to the health of my family when I saw those exact same conspiracies really like influencing the way that people behaved and moved and what they chose to do with when it comes to like masking and, and all the, and gathering, all these things that are things that we have to do on a personal level. Like you have to make those personal decisions to watch out for your own health and for the health of others. Those can't be legislated, unfortunately. Like it has to be something that you believe yourself. And and when those beliefs or, or, or that, you know, not the information that, hey, this is an airborne respiratory, upper respiratory disease that people get by being around each other and breathing air, not from some cell phone signal, not from some, consp- it's just another illness that you probably should understand, but maybe you don't, when all that's being clouded by the conspiracies, I think it's just incredibly difficult for people to make sound decisions. And so uh, I give that kind of background because my father was a part of a community, a, a religious community that did not take it, take the pandemic seriously, that did not believe that this virus was, didn't believe it posed a threat that it posed. And then once that became hard to prop up, it, it became that, oh, this is just all kind of a conspiracy to get to this vaccine. And so we don't trust the vaccine. And and so my dad was in a, a religious community like that. And, you know, I've obviously been reflecting on that a, a lot. And, and I don't intend to blame any one person, right? I don't, yeah. that's not necessarily the thing that I'm trying to do here. But what I am trying to say is that our influence matters and the ways in which we use our influence is like really, really important. And so to have people within that religious community sharing false information, disinformation, I'm living with the results of that. Yeah. You know, they've moved on with their lives. They've been able to keep going and and that that conspiracy was totally debunked and wrong and this thing didn't come to pass. But okay, anyway, moving on to the next conspiracy. Whereas there are people, not just my father and me and my family, but hundreds of thousands of other people who kind of exist in the same exact space where they're still reckoning with the weight of that disinformation and the impact that it had. And I can share that as the cerebral kind of thing to think about, right? But I can also share the emotions of just pain and and, and difficulty of losing someone that you love. And so I hope that gets to your question. That is so incredibly generous of you. Thank you so much. I just think it's important for people to hear the personal stories because there's still a lot of naysayers and still a lot of, you know, beliefs that just aren't holding water and yet people are still carrying them. And particularly in our community, you know, black and brown communities are still being devastated. And we're being devastated on so many different levels because of our disbelief, our, our not having access, our not having resources, the religiosity um, that is not necessarily spirituality. So there's so many different ways we're being attacked by something that was totally survivable had we just had what we needed and listened to, to what was out there that was valid. So I really, really appreciate you saying that. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. You had a bit of an article in today.com. That's pretty impressive. And you said you felt something was missing from the social media conversation about race, anti-racism, and I'm going to say American history. I know you said black history, but I think people who subscribe to white supremacy love to try to separate black history from American history. So I always like to put it as American history. And I agree with you uh, so much so. You know, those of us who have been on the front line for over 15, 20 years trying to remove the stigma of mental health, 
and educate people on, on American history, you just, you hit us with that one because it's absolutely so true and appreciate that that was the thing that brought you through the pandemic to social media. You said you wanted to tell untold history lessons. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're if you grew up in an educational system, anything like mine, Black History Month was like, hey, y'all were slaves. And then yada, 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 Frederick Douglass, something, something MLK, Civil Rights Act, Obama. (laughs) And okay, we're at February. We're at the end of February. Let's move on. Right. And so I think, unfortunately, for many people, that's the story. That's the story of Black history. And, And which means that there are millions of stories that are untold that we get to tell and get to explore and go deeper on. But more important, in conjunction with that, I won't say more importantly, I think that our, in order to understand where we are today, we have to see where we've come from, right? Like our past informs the present moment. It's all bearing down on the very present moment. And so until we are able to really look back and reckon with and understand the past, Uh, We will not understand where we are now, and we certainly won't understand where we're going. And so in unearthing those untold stories, I am simply trying to help us understand where we are and how we got here so that we can chart a better way forward. I couldn't agree with you more. Once again, you're speaking my language. You know, the past informs the present and guides the future. And without a piece of the past, there's, there's definitely a piece missing the puzzle. We feel the trauma, but we don't have the story. And when you don't have the story, you don't get to have access to any properties that have to do with thriving on a more consistent and healthy level, which is why we are constantly in survival mode and why we are at, at odds with white supremacy and the collusion of the lack of information. So agreed, completely yeah. agreed. And, I, and it was interesting and, and helpful to read. Just I, I always like to know a little bit more about people than what they show on TikTok. So I was, I was thrilled to find that article. That was really cool. It's awesome. Uh, so I, I, you know, there's so much to go through that you put out there. And so I, I decided to grab a few that you highlighted on your um, TikTok and have you say uh, a little bit about it. So one of your posts and TikToks talks about the question, and I love the way you phrase this, how do white people become white people? You said, <laughs> you said whiteness is a robber. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think that white people, unfortunately, are socialized to rarely examine their own racial identity. They don't think of themselves as racialized beings. And so by posing the question, how did white people, a.k.a. what is understood to be the norm, become white people, a.k.a. taking that outside of the realm of the norm and objectifying it, right? Objectifying whiteness. How did you become this thing? And so that's why I pose that question that way. And the reason why I say that it's a robber is because we know that whiteness is a political identity at its core. It's something that has been constructed, socially constructed, and socially upheld. And that social construction has not always been inclusive of the people who identify as white today. And mm-hmm. so it's but to, to become a white person or for a group to become white as collectively, there are things that must be robbed from that identity. Irish people and Germanic people and Polish people all have to lose Italian people as they come to America. They all have to lose touch with something, some part of their original ethnic identity in order to be absolved into the collective melting pot of whiteness. And so that's what I mean when I say it's a robber. I think the history of how these disparate groups of ethnic folks who just happen to have light skin, but very little in common, how they all 
conglomerated into what we identify today as white or whiteness or white people is fascinating. History is absolutely incredible. And so I reference a book by Nell Irvin Painter called The History of White People, very aptly named book. Uh, And I highly recommend all white people, but even non-white people to check that out. So, and I just want to clarify, only people of color, people from the global majority can say non-white. That's the disclaimer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, yeah. So that's amazing. It's great. I love how you phrased it and how you educated about it. You know, and then they all jump into European immigrant status. And the problem with that is I agree that it's a robber because it doesn't even give their story the the essence of what immigration is for so many people. And, I, and I'm, if you ever listen to my podcast, I talk a lot with people about the immigration process. And it's different than the migrant process. And it's different mm-hmm. when you are enslaved. There's a mm-hmm. specific story that is their own. And when you jump into the European pot, you give up a little bit of that. So you sell a little bit of your soul, I think, to become a part of this privileged set of people. So you gain something, but what you lose is more important, in my opinion. So I appreciate the explanation. I I think that's, I think it's really, really well said. And I'm like taking mental notes because some of that stuff, you're going to see it in a video one day. I just love the way way you articulated that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's a big compliment (laughs) coming from you. (laughs) Okay. Another one is, and I'm not even going to give a lead into this. I'm going to just let you do this. Um, The NRA leaked tapes. Mm, you know, I was just talking about this with a friend yesterday. Um, yeah, so the history is that after Columbine, there was a meeting because the NRA was having its annual convention just about 15 to 20 minutes down the road or so. And so it's right there. And Columbine is this huge mass shooting event in America in the late 90s. And so people are scrambling. Do we have a national rifle convention immediately following a rifle mass shooting and, you know, and so there's all of these kind of conversations happening. And I found out recently that these tapes were leaked about this woman who led the NRA at one point, but was a part of their kind of brain trust of folks trying to navigate this, how she essentially stops this meeting. They're kind of pussyfooting around. They are considering apology. They're considering scaling back. They don't want to have kids there. They, they're like really contrite, uh, even recognizing the way in which they fed into this moment, right? They've contributed to this, this mass shooting moment. And this lady is just completely unequivocal. You will not cancel this event. You will move forward business as usual. And so that history is very, very interesting. Highly recommend checking that video out. Yeah, I, well, love, I-, I had a lot of fun. Listen, I heard the piece and I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. It's so good and so important. And the one piece you left out that you said was they were that they said in the tape was they were going to donate a million dollars. That's right. That's like, right. Shut that shit down. <laughs> yeah. We are that's culpability. I was like, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, Man, it's crazy. So I'm sorry. It's crazy. Excuse my language. No, 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 no. It's crazy. You know, what's wild about it is like I went back. So this is kind of I'm like a really big archival video nerd. That's my jam. I can spend hours, okay? <laughs> hours just lost in the archives. I just love it. I love the video's been around for long enough that we can look back so far into the past and see how people were moving and talking yeah. and engaging. It just, I've, I'm just so fascinated by it. Okay, I say that to say, I end up going down a rabbit hole of watching like all of the NRA conventions on C-SPAN's website. It's all there for free. You can watch it. And so I watch like all of them and there is a market, there's like a really significant shift 
in the way they approach their work, it's almost like I could in this is the thing. I'm a progressive liberal, whatever you want. I am on that left. End. But I could almost see myself being yeah. OK with the NRA in the late 90s. Just the tone. Absolutely. The tone is just totally different today. I can see myself conceding that, yeah, I mean, hey, those, those people are just fine. They just are interested in in guns. That's fine. Yeah. But mm-hmm. today it's like, no, they're rabidly interested in, in, in like arming every single dangerous person in the world. And I just can't believe it. I'm going off here. But please no, no, check no, out the archival footage. I loved it. It was amazing to see the ways in which they changed the conversation over time. And I think that moment with the lady that you're talking about, I think that was a pivotal moment that began to shift the mm-hmm. way they approached this conversation publicly. First of all, I have so much gratitude that you are an archival nerd because I have ADHD <laughs> and can't focus on one thing for too long in terms of going down a rabbit hole. I'd have to be quick and fast or I have to be in a book or with a client or a group <laughs> or a classroom. But so I'm I'm grateful that you bring this to light because it is they are gems, man. They are real gems. So thank so you. So many gems. Yeah. Uh, the NRA it's a business, you know, and it's not a very good business. And you are absolutely right about the fact that they have changed their tone um, and they've changed it with racism transitioning to white supremacy. You no longer have to say racism or white supremacy. Everybody knows that white supremacy is racism now. So they yeah. have gone with the times also in terms of, you know, the MAGA uh, group. They've gone mm. the cult. They've gone with that. They're more bold. We're more bold. So there's no hiding anything that you believe. Kids are killed. We're sorry. Send sympathy. Mental health institutions. Like they mm-hmm. don't even try to pull the sentences in anymore. Right. <laughs> it's just those three things. And God, Christ, Democrats are bad. Right. No creativity at all. So I think it is helpful for people to see because when people buy into something like the NRA, they're a part of it and they can't bring themselves to evolve and realize, wow, this doesn't fit my ideology anymore. And so it is important to see from whence they came and understand they may not be who you thought they were or who they once were or pretended to be, whatever, right? Yeah, 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 that's that's well said. I think there's a, a role, what kind of surfaces for me after hearing you say that, it's like, there's a role for these like kind of centrist, moderate voices. <laughs> like I would much yeah. rather transition these people completely out, you know, out of the right-wing right. ideology. But the centrist voices that, that, I, that I have a certain level of respect for the most are people who are saying like, no, things have changed. There was a time where being conservative or you know wasn't synonymous with fascism. Like it wasn't just like right. like one a one to one thing like we have today. Right. And so those centrist voices can be really helpful for kind of revealing exactly what I've kind of discovered yeah. in watching these things. You know, watching like archival footage or watching the old conventions. It's like, oh mm-hmm. man, there is a, like a significant shift. It's not just in my head. Like there's evidence of it just on tonality alone. And I hope that the moderates can begin to usher more and more people into a position to say that like, hey, they're moving away from us. And that needs to, at the very least, be acknowledged. And I think, you know, look, that's Liz Cheney with all the things that she hasn't done correctly. I see that she is being treated as a hero for doing what she's done currently. And we have to stop the extremes. You know, we have to stop now she's all good before she was all bad. She is who she is. She just got a conscious about it. And it's about time. (laughs) (laughs) Right, 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 right. right. You know, in many ways, I think what's happening with uh, the former president is throwing, it's overshadowing a lot of the groundwork that Republicans have been doing for so long Mm -hmm. that led to the kind of the, for them, a win on the Supreme Court. I think it's a huge L for women, but for them, that's the thing that they've been working toward for so long. 
And a lot of that is the work of a longitudinal kind of strategy, like long game for sure. And the things that the former president is doing like really overshadows and distracts from that. And so I think it's, uh, you know, I can't necessarily give them credit because I disagree with their long game, right? I can't give Liz Cheney credit because she's still an instrument for the long game, right? But you're right that people are are, you know, a little blinded by that in the moment. But I do think that they play at at the same time. All that to say, I think they play a role in the way that we are hopefully able to move people further and further away from that chasm of like abject fascism that that it seems as though we're barreling toward. I hope so. I mean, one would hope, right? So it's great to hear someone else talk about white liberals advancing the white supremacy agenda. Thank you. So (laughs) will you you say a bit about the great replacement theory and the white liberals uh, part and how that's been advanced? Sure. Yeah. So I made a video about the way that kind of liberal news media talked about the United States census. And it was actually probably one of my most misunderstood (laughs) videos. I got a lot of people, I just got the sense that they didn't understand what I was trying to say there. So Thank you for the opportunity to hopefully clarify for anyone who's wondering. You know, when we talk about the United States Census, there is a category for people who identify as white. And there are kind of like actually a few different ways in which that category is sliced. There's the people who identify as white only. And then there are people who identify as like white Hispanic, right? That even though that terminology is a bit outdated, but that's what's on there, right? So kind of these white identifying groups and people slice them out in different ways. And my point is that the liberal news media, if you will, after the census data came out, many of them did what I believe to be was advancing the racial purity politics of white supremacy by completely excluding those who identify as white, but Mm -hmm. come from Latino or Latin or Hispanic backgrounds. And those people, a lot of a lot of like white passing Latin people walk around as white people. Like, let's be very, very clear. They operate in the world as white people. And you can think about Emilio Estevez and Cameron Diaz and a number of other people who fit that description. Ted Cruz. Right. You can think of a ton of people who really operate in this world as white people live with white privileges in many ways, vote white, vote with the white majority, right? And yet, when we look at the census data, somehow they're excluded from this group. And so that's how you come to the conclusion that white people are diminishing. That's the only way is to exclude all those people who are very likely living white lives, but somehow don't get grouped into this category of whiteness currently, only when it's convenient. But anyway, that's a different story. They exclude those people. And that's how you can come to the conclusion that white people are like, you know, diminishing in population. But the reality is if you include those people who identify as white, all white identifying people, uh, the number of white people in this country has actually gone up. And so uh, I think that the great replacement theory is predicated in many ways on that lie, on that belief that white that the white population is diminishing. Um, But the data actually doesn't bear that out. And so I think we should examine why it is that we think it's okay to go along with white supremacist narratives, that there is a racial purity, that there is a true white group of people who are racially pure and white only. And those people are distinct and different from others who, you know, have like Hispanic, who are from Spain or Cuba. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's incredibly important as, as everything else that you've said. The reality is that, you know, the great replacement theory and what you're saying 
it feeds the fear. And anything that feeds the fear feeds the extreme. And it's not helpful. It's not helpful. I mean, I remember research that I did years and years, probably 20 years ago that said, you know, by 2030, the global majority will actually be the global majority. Well, they've got it down to 2024 now with the, yeah. with the fear that's, yeah. that's feeding this, you know? And, yeah. and what does that really mean anyway? It's like the financial power is the only thing that matters. So we can't get laxed in feeling like the global majority is going to be running things if we don't take hold of this financial reign and spend within the global majority and stop feeding the financial wealth of the, you know, people who run white supremacy, essentially, or benefit from it. Yeah. So I think it's extremely important to, to yeah. differentiate and understand. Thank you. I think so. So look, clearly I could go on for another hour with you. So I'm really hoping you will come back. I have a couple more, <laughs> um, couple more questions, but I already feel like, oh my God, this needs to be another show because you are so interesting and, and I really value everything that you're saying. So I'm going to pick and choose from these last few. And I mean that sincerely. I don't just say that. I have people on who I, who I respect greatly and I definitely respect you. So thank you for what you do. Thank you. Yeah, I mean that. So the one I think I want to go to is because I think this involves people who work hard for their money. And so I think it's important for people to hear. It's the history of tipping in America. Okay. So I learned actually this from the podcast through line. They have a, an episode called land of the fee, which talked about tipping and it talked about the history of tipping and how tipping really is directly connected to American racial hierarchy beliefs, at least in America, you know, tipping has been around for a long time. It was a thing that was in Europe. But most Americans were totally against tipping. They thought that it was like a relic of their European, you know, past and they wanted no parts of it until the abolition of slavery. And then suddenly uh, tipping was OK. You know, the idea was that tipping was feudalism. It was it immediately made someone a second class citizen if they received a tip. It's disrespectful to for a man to receive a tip from another man for the service or the work that he's done, he should be, you know, charged honestly and paid honestly. And, and that's that on that. No need for a tip. It, it makes the person subservient. And then they abolished slavery and the beliefs around racial hierarchy that already existed became more economically embedded into this, not only into the, like our way of doing things, but into the, you know, into the psyche. And so it's like, oh yeah, tipping is expected. We can tip because these people are beneath us. It's fascinating. It's fascinating that that switch was like so quick yeah. and so easy to document. So I highly recommend checking out Throughline, phenomenal okay. podcast just in general, but that episode, yeah. Land of the Fee, is really, really good. And, you know, I, 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 every time I hear that, it's, it's like new information. I hear a new piece that I hadn't heard before. And the thing about it is how people feel about tipping. Like, you didn't do good enough, so I'm going to tip you less. Like it's so hierarchical, you know, you don't deserve it. So they deserve being underpaid and they don't deserve your appreciation, no matter how little they did just showing up. I mean, the tip, what people make under their tips is, is an insult and it's it not is. a living wage. So I think it's really important for people to understand how they feed into, how they buy into, and then continue to feed into a system that no longer works. No, um, it's horrible. You have said something that I have been saying for years, which is, I'm going to, I'm going to summarize it. Basically everything that is problematic, you're convinced that everything that is problematic in society has racist roots in America. And I, I absolutely believe that as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's so scary that you can trace it pretty, pretty directly 
to the history of enslavement. So I wanted you to say something about the whitewashing of country music. You don't have to get into it a lot, but just say a little bit about it, because I think that's a, a perfect example. Yeah, I think you're I think you're totally right. I, you know, I, I actually have a, an appreciation. I can't quite say I love country music, but I have an appreciation for country music. There's a lot of good country music out there. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt here's the transparency. I've always felt a little guilty about that. It's almost felt like yeah. I was like venturing outside of like my territory, <laughs> right? Like, right. oh, I shouldn't like this. These people are terrible. But <laughs> there's a direct connection to my West African roots. Now, I'm an African-American. I'm a descendant of enslaved people. But but if you go back far enough, my people came from West Africa, like most all other African-American people. And I had no idea until in the re- very recent years that the banjo is a West African instrument. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's like, how did I not know that we brought, that our, that, that my, our ancestors brought the banjo here and yeah. in the foothills of Appalachia, we're playing that banjo and teaching other people how to play and, and singing old Negro spirituals and collaborating with these Appalachian folk songs. It, it, I mean, the history of country music is actually the history of like racial congruence, like black and white people coming together in a really powerful way. But of course, anti-blackness and white supremacy have boxed black people and many other people of color completely out of the genre. And and only recently are they starting to reclaim this art form that was co-created at best. And I think that's an appropriate way to describe it, but heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by African people. I think you're being generous when you say (laughs) (laughs) co-created. But for the sake of time, I will go along with that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So look, listen, I'm a bit late hopping on the uh, Garrison fan bus because (laughs) I'm on Insta more than I am TikTok. But please give everyone your handles so they don't miss the bus because I'm loving the ride for real. So please tell people where they can find you. No, thank you. You can find me on Instagram at Garrison H. I actually lead with that because that's probably the place where I have the most authentic interactions with folks that I am meeting online. And so connect with me over there at Garrison H. But I'm also on TikTok at Garrison Hayes, my first and last name. Awesome. Twitter at all? Twitter at Garrison underscore Hayes. I've actually been tweeting so much more in the last few weeks, mainly because I took kind of a break from TikTok and Instagram over the summer. So Twitter was my outlet. So you can find me over there as well. Would love to. And that's another place where I love to interact with people. Awesome. And then uh, anything on YouTube? I do have a YouTube channel. I'm really trying to launch into that. And so you can get in early and it's Garrison Hayes. I think probably the easiest way to find me on YouTube is to click the link in my bio on Instagram or TikTok. There should be an easy an easy way to, to click to my YouTube channel. And most importantly, your link tree. Give me your link tree because that's where everything is. It's a good question. You're putting me on the spot here. So right. it's going to be, right, <laughs> it's probably just going to be my last, my first and last name, I'm guessing. Right, look it up. Look what you're editing this for. Look for it. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I think it's actually at Garrison H. So here, let me double check. Yes. Okay. So my link tree is link tree 
I don't even know how to say this because it's like no, link we'll just link. Do people know? Okay, people know. Yeah, people know. Know. Okay, so my link tree is slash backslash Garrison or forward slash Garrison H. Same as my Instagram. Easy. Okay. You know what? I want everybody to know where to find you everywhere all the time. So that's why I, I, <laughs> I push it. I truly believe that you are the future of DEIJ. And so I want to get my prejudice out of the way. And I want, I want you to present your perspective before we leave here today. So I, I feel like DEIJ, I'm so sick of the letters. I feel like it's becoming so homogenized. It's turning into something that diversity was once a hundred years ago when I started doing diversity training. It was something new, invaded, innovative. We tried to figure it out. And then it became diversity. And now I feel like that's coming with, that's what's happening with DEIJ. But I want you to put your spin on it because clearly you have a voice that's important and that needs to be heard. So talk to us a bit about what you're doing in your work that feels like it's progressive. That's really, that's, I love this question. I don't get to talk about this as much because this is like almost like there's a content realm of my life. And mm-hmm. then there's like this, you know, DEIA or DEIJ or you know, all the, the letters can go everywhere, but there's that aspect of my life. And so I think I'll say personally that I think there are a couple of things that we have to really consider. I think there's, uh, and it's all really housed in this idea called uh, inclusive excellence. I'm a huge fan of inclusive excellence. So if you are a DEI, AJ practitioner, I highly recommend that you look into the framework, inclusive excellence. And, and I'll just share one part that I think is really, really important for consideration, which is this idea of access versus success. And so do people of color have access to your organization or your institution? And then kind of a follow-up question to that is once they're there, are they successful? I think it's a really, really important kind of conversation to have internally for both for much of my work has been with educational institutions, but even outside of the education world, thinking about success in the organization, are they progressing? How are, you know, is there an equitable promotion data present there, right? Are, are they represented, right? Like, I think all of these are really, really important questions. And so the evolution of, of my work in this space, in the DEI space, has really kind of begun to turn a little bit more toward allyship. I think we can create policy that promotes equity. Diversity is really just a fact, and we can do the necessary steps to increase diversity. But in many ways, yeah. that's a fact of where we are. And then we can do a lot of work for inclusion and belonging. But that allyship component is the p- part that's been missing in many ways in, in my work or in the places where I've worked, where we're not doing enough. And and here it is. This is really getting back to what I do in my content. We're not doing enough, in my opinion, to really take stands around education. And so we're doing this stuff for like people of color and for marginalized groups and women in the LGBTQ plus community. Like we're doing the things, but how are we bringing the rest of our workforce and the rest of our community along on a journey that ensures that ultimately this is a safe place where people can breathe, where people can thrive and, su- and be successful. And so that's where I'm talking about with that access and success differentials. Like, what are we doing that once someone is, has gained access to the organization or the institution, what are, we, what are the steps that we're taking to ensure that they are successful, not just in the trajectory of their career, but in their actual lived experience, like in that place? Is this a safe place? And I think a lot of that has to do with allyship. It's kind of a long answer, but I hope that was helpful. No, no, no. It's great. It's great. And I and I just want to I want to tweak it for how I use language and and offer it to you and invite you into it, which is I think allyship is problematic because it sets people up to sit back and watch 
and visit and just be on the periphery. And I feel like we have to charge white people with more of an active action role and abolition type mentality where it's my job to do it, not my job to hang out along with while you do it. And so that's the only reason I'm challenging allyship. The other thing I think you're talking about with success is you're talking about equity. And there isn't enough emphasis on equity. You can have all the diversity and all the inclusion you want. If there is not an equitable mentality, but also practice in place, then it gets lost in that we have 25 different races <laughs> in different <laughs> positions, yep. you know, and there is no equitable factor. So I really love that you mentioned that. Thank you so much. And, and I no. hope that was helpful. Yeah, that was very helpful for me. And and I appreciate that nudge. I also love that it's still an A word. So we can like <laughs> just replace, yeah, exactly. you know, allyship with action or right. Yeah. Like, like, I love yeah. that. But I think you're totally right. And when I am thinking allyship, right, like I think you're totally right in shifting the language because it's much more clear. But mm-hmm. when I'm thinking allyship, I'm thinking about the action of actually people are people talk about accomplishing, being an accomplice yeah. and they'll and I think that's all there. And I think you're totally right. right that there needs to be an emphasis on the ways in which the often majority in the com- in the company or organization, how yes. they need to change. Like, let's be very, very clear. Like, this is you. This is your responsibility. Like, racism is white people's responsibility. Thank you. And we can't we can educate and, and have black owned things and, and we can go down that road as much as we want. And we can keep create our enclaves. Like I'm from Atlanta. So I love that we have our space in Atlanta, right? Like we can be ourselves. And yet I grew up with a toxic creek in my backyard. And that's the problem of white people who are making decisions to allow for communities of color to be completely decimated, both environmentally and economically. And the list goes on and on and on. And so all that to say, I I love the shift that you're giving me. And and I love to continue kind of having these kinds of conversations with you and learning from you. Oh, I'd love that. I'd be honored. And I, I think just to validate what you're saying, it's not people from the global majority who don't know what allyship is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we know what we mean when we say it. The problem is we're teaching it. And you look in the dictionary, it's not as actionable. And that's why I do like the fact that, you know, I'm glad you feel that that shift because I think it's important for education, as you said, as people who are in the majority in these companies and in these schools. So Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Look, it's clear you are doing so much to change the narrative moving forward. And what's next for you? Is there anything on the horizon that you want to leave? I do have a couple of things. And we talked, we started our conversation talking about content and being content creators and all of the nuances with that. And so I've been helping some folks figure out how to do that themselves. I think there are people who have so much to share and I've been able to find, figure out a few ways to share clearly on platforms like TikTok and Instagram. And I love to help others. And so you can find information about that in the link in my bio. So that's one thing. And then I really am diving into YouTube. You can jump in early. I've only uploaded one video, but I'll be making more long form content where we get to explore these ideas a little bit more deeply. And I think it'll be entertaining and fun. And you'll get to see a little bit more of me and And so I'm super excited about that. So I'd encourage anyone that hears this, I'd urge you to check me out on YouTube, subscribe, really helps, goes a long way. And so I'd love to have a community of people who think like this and are are interested in these ideas over there as well. So Garrison, please stay connected. Please come back. I I just, I love talking to you. You're you're so smart and you, you, the way you put it together is is so important. And I, I just want to emphasize that I value your work. I value you. Thank you so much for sharing space with me today. 
It means a lot to me. So thank you for those words and for sharing your platform with me. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. 